Another day is here, and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDSE. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. I had to go about it, write it out, and find it myself. And there's some stories I can tell you. It's the final word, cricket podcast. Adam Collins and Jeff Lemon coming to you from, well, Birmingham in my case. I'm sitting at Edgbaston after the Cricket Writers Club AGM. But earlier in the day, uh, as I welcome Jeff, who's in Melbourne as ever, uh, I had the chance to sit down with a, a great of English cricket, Dennis Amos. We didn't tease this on the uh, weekly app yesterday, Jeff. I wasn't entirely sure this was going to come to fruition, but I'm glad that it did because I, I think that... Uh, he's an understated guy with a tremendous record who I think it's fair to say, I wouldn't say underrated because that suggests that people uh, don't think highly of him. They do, but maybe a story that isn't as well known as some of his contemporaries. And uh, it was uh, good to spend some time with him this morning. I think more understated than than underrated, perhaps. If, if you're somebody of our generation, and certainly if you're somebody who's younger, if you're a cricket fan in your 20s watching IPL, you're not going to know who Dennis Amos is. You, you won't have had that opportunity to rummage through the history and find it out. But it's an extraordinary life and an extraordinary career. Someone who starts playing test cricket in 1966 through to 77, you know, plays through the emergence of the West Indies as a great team, the start of that great era. Uh, someone who plays in those Pivotal Ashes series with Lillian Thompson running amok in the middle of the 70s. Somebody who plays through until the start of World Series cricket and then plays that tournament as well with the Packer Breakaway Circus and someone who started playing first-class cricket in 1960 and finished up in 1987. I mean, it's... It's an extraordinary length, an extraordinary span, and, and we've talked about some of these sort of players on Storytime who have these vast first-class careers. You know, this is one of them, more than 43,000 first-class runs, 100 centuries, 50 test matches for England. The the bulk of that career, the, the substantiveness of it, it's, well, I mean, you, you can't really talk it up too far. Yeah, and I think he might be one of the last to have a career like this too, right? So it's a it's a trans- transformative age in terms of the cricket they played. He joins here at Warwickshire when he's 15 in 1958, when the world's so different, right? Like we're not far beyond sort of like war rations, like we're only five or six years beyond that. He was born in the war and he goes all the way through to what's 
broadly defined as the modern era, I guess. Late 80s, he finishes in 1987 at age 44. He is involved in so much cricket and so much happening, which is why he yeah, has the time, I suppose, to make 43,000 runs and, and one of the last, well, not one of the last, but um, the last clump of players to have the time to reach 100 first-class hundreds. Even that, we didn't really go into depth about the longevity of his career uh, at the end, but there was a sense that he wanted to give something back. The club wanted him to work with the younger players and when he was ready to retire, he was on 86 tonnes and they said, why don't you stick around for a few more years and see how you go? And he ends up with 102, which is such a feather in the cap of any player of that generation. And as you say, Lillian Thompson at their best, holding at the start, holding Mark One, who was at his fastest and most fierce there with Andy Roberts in 1976 when he gets back into the side. But despite having this great record and great conversion rate and other bits and bobs we'll touch on, it's the fact that he got dropped multiple times. It took him ages to establish himself. It's not, a, it's not all smooth sailing as it can be with some players who reach the top flight and play for 15 years for England. He had to do it the hard way. And if you look at a career and you say 50 test matches, there are a lot of players in that modern era you know maybe that'll start tapering off now but between say 1990 to the present day who played that many I'll give you a pop quiz that you there is no way that you'll know the answer to this <laughs> but um, but just to get a sense just to on, on a vibes based economy so he started in 1966 how many players do you reckon up until that point would have played 50 test matches ballpark yeah, I mean, you could probably, I reckon you could probably count them on your fingers and toes. Would that be fair to say? A, slight, a little bit more than that, maybe if you had um, exceptional digits. <laughs> but, but 33 players had right, played right. 50 tests to that point. And he goes on to become one of those. I think by the time he gets there, he's about the 55th or something like that to, to play 50 test matches. So it's a vast achievement at the time. And to have to have had that career, you know, in those games, he makes 11 test centuries, 11.50s, so the conversion rate that you mentioned, I mean, that's right up there with the best of the best as well. And it's the very best when it comes to one-day cricket. Nobody who's scored 400s or, or more in one day has, has a better conversion rate. Only one unconverted 50 in a smaller sample size. He only played 18 one-day internationals, but the mm. first man to make 100 in that form of the game and the first ever, of course, in the World Cup because, well, it was the first World Cup game played in, in 75 for the men, so a couple of years after the women played their first tournament, but at Lords there against India in August of 1975, I think it was. So, yeah, there, there are a lot of firsts for him as well, and, and also the players that he was a contemporary of. We didn't get a chance to fully interrogate the, the relationship between him and Jeff Boycott, but it was clearly a complex one because they were often not fighting for the same spot in the side necessarily, but for primacy where they fit in the pecking order I guess and boycott stepping away from the England team because he wasn't made captain in the mid-70s and when he returned and said he was available for selection again in 77 it was it was Amos who they dispensed with despite having had a pretty good year after returning to the side in in 1976. In 1973 when they were playing a test match against New Zealand and Amos runs boycott out and boycott tells anybody who'll listen that he was going to run out Amos intentionally the next time they batted together until Raymond Illingworth said no you don't that's just absolutely ridiculous so you know there's this byplay with him and boycott and the players who he immediately followed one that we, we touched on was Ken Barrington when he came in to effectively replace him in that spot in the side in the ashes in in 68 which started this poor run against Australia but the contrast is averaged 71 in test cricket against the West Indies who were on their way to becoming the best side in the world so any sort of uh, lingering thought that he was no good against fast bowling because Lillian Thompson worked him over doesn't 
pass muster when you look at his other records. Yeah, and, and that's something, that, you know, we, it would have been nice to have some more time to go into would be that kind of relationship. I suppose the, the fact that a player can have a statistical quirk, as it were, and, and find themselves being defined by that as they go on through their post-career period, you know, that there is... You, there can be like a really easy way to sum somebody up and it's usually not actually accurate but as long as it's simple people will hang on to the, mm. the simplest possible tag yeah and uh he played with graham gooch they cross over just and the, the old gooch adage about daddy hundreds well this guy was the master of the daddy hundred we told him of this stat. I'm surprised he didn't know it. I think this is an Abhijek Mukherjee beauty that yeah, 73% of his hundreds were 150 or above at test level, which really does stand out. So, And I think there is a through line here between his upbringing here in Birmingham, a working class upbringing. Um, we heard him talk about the tyre factory that his family were involved in, that he grew up close to the ground, that he didn't have that posh, you know, sort of... Uh, public school, if you like, in the English context, uh, education, that he wanted to squeeze the sponge as hard as he could. He never left anything out there. So, And so it goes for the service that he provided the game afterwards as an administrator, both at Warwickshire, which, you know, where I interviewed him was less than a mile from where we are here at the Edgbaston Cricket Ground. He grew up around the corner. He was born another mile from here. So, so much of his life has, has been around this ground and then going on to be a very successful director at the ECB at a time of transition, again, moving from you would call it the semi-pro era into the professional era. Well, he was there for all of that. So that's the Cliff Notes version. If you didn't know a whole lot about Dennis Amos before hearing this, you know a little bit more now, but I think you'll know a lot more after you hear our conversation with him. I'm Glenn Maxwell. Make sure you listen to my favourite podcast, The Final Word. It's a Final Word Cricket Podcast with Adam Collins and Jeff Lemon. I'm in Birmingham, Edgbaston to be precise, the Edgbaston Golf Club, and sat opposite me on a glorious spring afternoon is one of Birmingham's favourite sons, Warwickshire's favourite sons, England international through the 60s and 70s, a man who tallied more than 100 hundreds and did all the rest. We'll talk about it all. Dennis Amos, welcome to the show. Yeah, thanks very much, Adam. Good uh, to be here. First of all, this is a... This is, this is really your manner, isn't it? I mean, you were born round the corner from Edgbaston as if it were foretold that you go on to do all you did at the Warwickshire County Cricket Club. I mean, you, you really are a product of the area. Yeah, I mean, that's uh, a long time ago since uh, I was uh, born in Birmingham, but um, um, Harbin was the area. Harbin's just down the road here, from here, from the Edgbaston Golf Club. And I spent uh, probably nearly, uh, nearly 50 years now as a member of the golf club here, so <laughs> I haven't been far. Um, but, uh, and, and Birmingham, of course, is, is, is home. I feel like this is a great time to be interviewing you, given that you had your 80th birthday just last month. I mean, your longevity in the game as a player, selector, administrator, kind of doing it all. But, yeah, the context of you being born in 1943 in the Second World War, I mean, it was before Italy was defeated. You know, this is like a really long time ago as far as uh, uh, all that's happened around the world and all that you've seen in the game. Has it been a chance for you to pause and reflect over the last month having turned 80? Yeah, it, it, it does. I, it's it's quite a, a milestone, isn't it? I didn't realise uh, it was going to be such a, a milestone and uh, having all the family together and uh, having um, a, a weekend in, in, in Tewkesbury uh, that we did, it, uh, it brought it all home and you do, you tend to look back and you think, well, you know, how do we get through it? How do we do it? And uh, how do we get here? But uh, um, 
they say you're as, as young as you feel and uh, and I think at the moment that uh, I've started, started to feel a little more uh, like, uh, like, like 80 but uh, um, somebody said you're a young 80 so I'll, ta- I'll take that. You kept yourself pretty busy the, the last couple of years, Dennis. I was interested in the story that you were hitting the phones during COVID, during the lockdowns, to keep an eye on, on your Warwickshire members and check up on, on everybody there. Can you tell us about that? Yeah, well, a lot of people were... were uh doing things uh, during covid and uh, i just thought that uh, i'd i'd help at the club you know i've been associated with the club since um, gosh 1958 you know when i first go down there i think it was 1953 when australia were there my father took took me down when uh, lindsay hassett batted all day against eric hollis and made 53 and saved the match for the aussies so um, um, that's that's a long time ago and I, I just felt that I wanted to continue helping the club and I thought it was a, a good idea, not only helping Warwickshire County Cricket Club, but also helping people that uh, might have got COVID or helping them prevent uh, them getting COVID and uh, lots of li- little chores around the house. I've got some really good friends who put up some money, so uh, we raised a bit, a bit of cash that went to the uh, local hospitals and hospice in Birmingham. So, uh, yeah, do, do, doing our bit, I suppose. And it looks like you used that time well on a personal front as well, writing a, another cricketing autobiography. There, there wouldn't be many cricketers who've written a book in the 70s and written one in 2021, covering not the same terrain, but obviously your career uh, almost in two parts there, really. But uh, what was the inspiration for getting the computer out, getting the pen out again uh, in your late 70s? Get, get, getting someone to help me write it. <laughs> <laughs> but, uh, yeah, I mean, I, I didn't know uh, that uh, who'd be too interested, but I just felt I got some stories to tell. The first one, the, the first, first book I wrote was up to uh, sort of the 70s. I'm not, not quite sure we uh, covered Australia um, um, as well as we should have done. So um, it, it, it was probably just going back over a few things in, in my youth and then bring, bringing it up to date. You know, as um, on, on the board, the England Wales Cricket Board, as, as chief executive at Warwickshire. And uh, so uh, all those things that I wasn't able to mention in the first book, uh, we put in the second book and uh, I wrote it with Jim Graham Brown. Uh, he's a well-known uh, cricketer and writer and uh, um, I, I think he did a really good job so I, I enjoyed I enjoyed doing it with him I was interested that you were named after a couple of cricketing footballers or footballing cricketers Dennis Compton more a cricketer than a footballer but both and, and his brother Leslie who was more a footballer than a cricketer and then that's reflected in your life you had a football injury as a teenager that meant that you tended more towards cricket as your life went on so it's interesting that uh, it was it was reflected in how your life panned out I think Jeff that um, really I was a much better cricketer than I ever was soccer player but uh, I did fancy <laughs> myself as a soccer player and I, I played a lot my parents didn't know they thought I'd gone off to Sunday school on a Sunday afternoon but I'd already played Saturday afternoon Sunday morning and then I was up for it on a Sunday afternoon they thought I went to uh, Sunday school and they'd come I'd come back and they'd ask me how it went and if we'd won I'd say it went very well if we'd lost well you know I thought I, it was a bit boring today um, but but I did I did love football and I got picked up you're quite right I picked up that injury uh, pl- playing soccer which um, restricted me in my in my cricketing career 
bowling-wise, but it probably made me focus more on my batting, so that might have been a, 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 bit, a good thing, that I was able to go on and uh, do well with a bat and probably wouldn't have done quite so well with a ball. I was medium pace. I thought I was quick at one stage, but uh, uh, I soon found out I wasn't when people started putting me in, in, in all sorts of places in the, on the, over the boundary. You mentioned um, your, your dad and your parents a couple of times. The fact that they, they had that, that tyre business locally, uh, give us a sense of what life was like for you as a, a young lad, I guess, running between your first job working for your parents and running around playing cricket, watching your dad bat and any other cricket that was going on at Edgbaston. Yeah, they were just wonderful times growing up. Um, um, my school days, I wasn't an academic, uh, but I was obviously in the in the soccer side. I was obviously in the uh, in the cricket team. So uh, um, it re- revolved all around that, really. I, I enjoyed it so much, and I went to watch my father play, and all the other sons were there, and we had our own match going on while our fathers were playing. He didn't play top club cricket but he played a good a decent standard so it was it was just uh, fantastic to uh, to be growing up and uh, and playing the sports that you really really loved I guess we have a, a glamorized idea of the 1960s if you didn't actually live through it what was it like for you being a young man in the 1960s yeah the 60s were were uh, were, were pretty hard work uh, especially early on because um, I was trying to make my way in the game and um, we had some really good players at Warwickshire County Cricket Club, some really good batters and I was in and out of the side um, but suddenly I think that uh, what made it was in, in, the, in the 70s was that uh, early 70s when uh, that season we won the championship I was out of the side for the first couple of games and uh, the two opening batsmen didn't score runs and I asked the captain if I could open the batting because I'd always been at number four and uh, and I was very lucky I got I got off to a great start with with um, 300s on the trot against uh, different county sides so that that was fantastic and that really set me on the road of opening the batting and and going forward. It's a bit of a theme of your career that you were a slow starter you made a a duck in your first second 11 game as a 15 year old in 1958 staggering to think you were playing that level then but then a, a duck in your first um, performance in the first team for Warwickshire in 1960 having not batted at all in, in your debut because the openers batted all day it, it played out for England as well but it, it took you a long time to graft and get there in the first team at Warwickshire four years to make your first century when it really could have gone either way for you it wasn't foretold that you were going to go on and become a an England international and play 50 test matches, not even close. Yeah, it, it, it was it was a real struggle and you did wonder sometimes that uh, whether you were ever going to make it and what I was, I was, was I going to go back into the tyre business that uh, my uncle and my father worked in? But uh, I'd enjoyed that during the, during the winter months. And also with, with truck tyres, we had some really good accounts uh, from uh, companies that had big, big lorries and the big truck tyres used to come in and we used to take them out. And that, that helped you getting your fitness and You're the right. strength and, and building your body up and everything. That helped me, helped me to hit the ball harder when, I, when, when later on in life. But, um, yeah, I mean... Uh, uh, in and out, in and out, and you're just wondering where, you, where you're going. But, but that, that chance came uh, early in the 70s, and uh, I was able to take it. Yeah, there's that slow start with your England career as well. You play one test in 1966, three in, in, in 1967, one in 1968. You have that season in 72 that you talk about where you're out of the Warwickshire team at one point and then you come back and come back with a bang, you know, make over a 1,000 runs for the season, make 500s. Warwickshire win the championship for the first time 
And then it's early the next year, early 1973, when suddenly you're up and running for England. You you make a couple of hundreds and a 99 in Pakistan and, and you're away. Was it that 1972 season with your county side that really got you going in test cricket as well? Yeah, I, I think so. It, it gave me the confidence. I never thought I was an opening batsman to be uh, to change a game in midlife, I suppose, that um, or early on in my career. It just changed my life. And it just gave me the confidence to go forward and play. And suddenly I thought, well, if I can do that in county cricket, you know, I, hopefully I can go into test match cricket and take take the same game that I've, that I've been working at. So... Uh, and it worked to a certain extent, yeah. But you, you, you have your ups and your downs all over your career. It feels like 1972, which Jeff touched on in his previous question, is an important turning point for you as far as the type of player you are as well. The blistering 100 at Lords to get back on the map after being left out early in the season. And later in the year, you miss out on Ashes selection in 72, but you play that one-day international. Uh, you make your one-day debut. You make a century, first 100 ever in one-day international cricket. It's quite the claim to fame. But um, by that stage of the season, you're batting far more aggressively and so it played out for the rest of your international career. Yeah, it was it was a fantastic season, 72. And uh, and to go against the Aussies and, and, uh, and score a century, I know it's a one-day international, but that was something, and I think that... Uh, you know, that, that really did sort of cement my, my position as an opening batsman and, 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 and a quality player. It's interesting that you're right there at the beginning of limited overs cricket, the way it's happening in, in county cricket before it becomes one-day internationals. You make the first 100, as Adam said, you make 100 in your last one-day or as well. Gordon Greenwich is the only other player to do both of those things. And then we're coming to this point where maybe the ODI is in its last few years. It's interesting to think that the entire span of one-day international cricket might come and go within your lifetime. Yeah, uh, I, hope it, I hope it doesn't. It was the first game of limited overs, wasn't it? And uh, it was, I thought it was a fant- fantastic, was it, was it 60, 60 overs in those days? Yep. 60, over, 60 overs, I think, yeah, when we first started. And it was a great, great game of cricket. It's 50 overs now, one day internationals, aren't they? Yeah, so, I mean, but you were through the 60 over era. I, I, I always think of this sort of, and tell me if I've got this right, there was this romanticism around limited overs cricket before the one day international started but in England the Sunday league and the televised cricket on, on BBC yeah, two and, right. and so on that when you got a chance to play a short form or a shorter form game on a Sunday on TV it meant quite a lot so as Jeff says you, you were pretty well placed when uh, the opportunity came about to play for England in, in 60 over cricket yeah we, we, we'd uh, got a, a lot of experience of, uh, of short form cricket by the time that uh, one day international you're quite right um, so we were just able to go uh, go into it and uh, play it as another game although it was Australia and we know that uh, that a tough tough side to play but I, I loved one day cricket I think opening the batting helps because you just got to one or two overs to, mm. to have a look at it and play yourself in and uh, I mean they don't these days do they they get the reverse <laughs> sweeping but uh, that's a, that's another that's another thing the way they hit the ball I was talking to somebody um they were playing golf, and he said, "Do you really enjoy this 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 uh, uh, IPL? This twenty overs?" I said, "It's brilliant." He said, "But there's there's no skills." In it. I said, "What? No skills? It's outstanding. They play shots that we we never did. I mean, we never played the revert the ramp or or the re- reverse sweep in those in those days. You might get inside it or outside it or something, uh, or hoik." Hoik over to mid-wicket. But um, um, I, I, just, I just loved it. We all wanted to hit the ball, 
but we, we, we're just frightened to do it in, in, in uh, proper cricket, in county cricket or, or maybe test match cricket, because if you got out, you got a rollicking. Uh, from from the captain, and that was that wasn't very nice. And sometimes it, maybe you you know if you did it again, you might be left out. So we had to stay in there. When you when you get fifty, you get a hundred. My coach said, when you get a hundred, you get one hundred and fifty. When you get one hundred and fifty, you get two hundred, because it makes up for all the times when you get naught, or the ones or the twos. So uh, that's how we were. That's how we were brought up. So was there a sense that it was all about convention, that there was, there was a way that you were supposed to play cricket and if you played it the wrong way, then you were offending the game in some way? Yeah, counter cricket was, but obviously when we came to uh, short-form cricket, uh, the Sunday League and the Benson and Hedges, that then you, you, you were going to expand your, your game and uh, you'd obviously got to get on with it and, and play some shots. So... Um, they, they might say to you, why did you hit it there? Why didn't you hit it somewhere else if you got out and got, got caught on the boundary or something? But uh, no, the thing was, short-form cricket, go and enjoy yourself. And that's how I, I looked at it. But I think that I was lucky being an opening batsman. I think it was easier as an opening batter. You've got the new ball, you've got the ballers when they're fresh. But if you could get over that, uh, we played on good wickets, good, good, good true wickets. It really helped. And you really did live that ethos of when you got to get in, you got kind of got to go on with it. I mean, it took you a a long time to get established. I was looking at the early part of your, your test career. It took you 22 innings to get your first ton. Most players wouldn't get that kind of latitude in modern cricket, only passing 50 once. But when you started doing it, it became a habit for England, making a, a couple of centuries in Pakistan when getting recalled in, in, uh, in 72 into 73. Uh, and then you get on a roll. Uh, so your first, I think it's your first a uh, dozen test matches, you average 18. And the next 20 test matches, you have the best stretch of your entire career across the formats and you're a ton machine. And, and they're mostly big centuries as well. Yeah, I, I think really that, um, you know, you're finding your way. You're not quite sure whether, whether you are uh, going to be uh, a test player. And if, 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 if you are, are you going to be a good one? How long are you going to be there? So I played with people like Colin Cowdery and Ken Barrington, and they were uh, fan- fantastic players. And I, and I thought, well, I'm never, I'm never going to be as good as them. Uh, but suddenly they weren't in the side, and then it was down to people like myself and uh, Keith Fletcher. Our careers ran, ran uh, uh, parallel with test match crickets. And, uh, and suddenly realised it was down to us. We hadn't got a Barrington or a, or a Cowdery or a Graveney. So, um, you know, we got to score the runs. And the added pressure on you, you mentioned Ken Barrington, when you play against the Australians in 1968, and we'll talk about your relationship with Australia in a bit, I'm sure, as the one part of your career that wasn't quite so productive. But you get a pair there in that first test at Old Trafford, first Ashes test, but you're effectively replacing Barrington. I mean, what's it like having those kinds of expectations on your young shoulders at that point. Yeah, it's, it's the pressure, isn't it? Because uh, Kenny's got such a great track record for Test Match cricket against every Test-playing country. So uh, a lot of pressure on, on, on your shoulders. And um, it was all a bit much. And uh, I, I, certainly when you get the second duck, you want the ground to open up and, uh, and, 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 and fall into that, into that pit and, and uh, stop listening to those people who say, he's no good, he'll never play for England again, as you walk through the members' area. <laughs> <It's all laughs> and, that's, and, it, and it hurts. And, and, but some, some, somehow, it, you, you've either got to get up and, and give it another go and work at it, which, which I did, or you, you, you chuck it away. And uh, I didn't want to chuck it away because it's such a great career. Uh, playing cricket for a living, 
getting paid for it, something you're good at. And my, my son always says to us, uh, Dad, you had uh, 50 years in the game, uh, 30 years playing, 20 years as administrator. He said that the rest of us, the rest of us have to work for a living. We talked about your 1973 getting up and running. 1974 is one of the more extraordinary individual series that you could find in in test cricket. You go to the Caribbean, West Indies are a very good team. They've just beaten England 2-0 at home. You make 174 in Port of Spain, 262 in Kingston, 118 in Georgetown. You manage to draw the middle three tests after losing the first one and then come back and win the last one to square up the series. And that 262 is is the innings that people talk about most when it comes to you. England, 230 runs behind on the first innings. The next best score is 38 and you manage to just bat so long that you see out a draw from an almost impossible position. At what point are you able to take stock and realise that you've done something truly significant? Is it only after the series is done or are you able to get a sense of the nature of it while it's still happening around you? Yeah, we, we, we'd lost that first one, hadn't we? And uh, to go down 2-0 um, in a five-test match series is uh, something we didn't, we, we didn't want to happen. So we've got to try and save it. It was a, it was a great wicket at, at Jamaica and uh, we had a little bit of luck. I mean, I came out on that last day, uh, Lance Gibbs bowling, he made one uh, just bounce and turn a little bit and I played it down and uh, I didn't expect to see Gary uh, anticipating th- uh, and with his left hand, but as, it, as his left hand hit the ground, the ball came out, which, it, which didn't, didn't happen very often with Gary. Um, so I got, I got lucky and uh, we did, yeah, we went on to uh, draw the next one or two test matches and because Tony Gregg came back bowling off cutters instead of seamers, um, the, the, with a little bit of turn there, at, um, it was Trinidad, wasn't it? Uh, we, we won that test match and we came away one all, which was a fantastic achievement considering uh, early on they were always on top and uh, if they'd have won that second test, maybe it could have been all over. Looking at your career in totality, you're known for your extraordinary consistency, uh, tallying a thousand runs or more 23 times in a row, for example, and, and reaching 100 hundreds. You've got to have that ability to, uh, to to score often. But also there were these peaks and troughs, and a real peak is after the 262, you go home uh, that summer and your golden run continues at home, 188 at Lords against India, 183 against Pakistan at the Oval. You actually get hit by a short ball against Pakistan, don't you, Safraz? Yeah. Uh, Wax you and you come back from being retired hurt and still make a big century, which is befuddling when you consider there was no protective equipment at that time. And we know you're a pioneer of the helmet and we'll talk about that a bit later, I'm sure. But that idea that you'd had to fight so hard to get an opportunity for a sustained run and to finally really grasp it across the course of, well, 20 test matches, averaging 71 with eight centuries in that run. Yeah. I, I think it's all about confidence, isn't it? And uh, you know, one knock, you know, you play, you play well and you go into the next test match, your confidence is there. And uh, it, it was, and I enjoyed it. I enjoyed it. I mean, anybody who doesn't enjoy batting, if they're a batsman, <laughs> don't, don't, <laughs> don't want to play the game. But, um, yeah, um, it was... And I think it, then the bad times come and you lose confidence. And, and that's natural and I think it, it happens to everybody and the only way you're going to get back on, get back up is, is to uh, keep practising, keep playing and hopefully one day you turn it round and you start getting them again. Getting back up is what you have to do after um, the run-ins with 
Dennis Lilly and Jeff Thompson, you've got the 74-5 Ashes in Australia and, and the 75 series in England. People maybe forget about the 90 that you make in Melbourne in the fourth innings where you're the key to drawing that test match um, because you go on to have a couple of failures, make a pair in Adelaide and Lilly gets you out five times in the series and then three more times in England before you get dropped. When you look back at it now, and because that that partnership, that bowling partnership at their peak, they're they're probably the most storied bowling partnership in the history of Test cricket, really. They get talked about more than just about anyone. Can you get some enjoyment from looking back and just being at the centre of the hurricane, being in a really historic position, you know, being able to witness that firsthand, even if it didn't work out well for you? Yeah, I mean, it was a fantastic series and uh, two two great fast bowlers at the, at the height of their game uh, and, and, and bouncing the Australian wickets, which we don't uh, see so much uh, over here. Uh, and they were uh, they were a handful, but the two people who got runs in that series was the was the long and the short of it was Tony Gregg who got two hundreds and Alan Notter who got the other two hundreds and Mike Dennis got one in the in the six. We had six test matches against those two bowlers. Normally it's five. We had six test matches against those two, uh, and they, they were a real handful. I was really disappointed that I didn't get a hundred in uh, when when I got that ninety and uh, say say the test match and uh, that didn't. I, th- I think. If I had have got a hundred and gone on from there, I think that maybe um, I might have scored more runs against Australia thereafter than than I did. Um, but it, uh, it, let, it I let myself down a little bit. But anyway, yep, it was tough times. But you look you look back and you think, why didn't I do that? Why didn't I do that? Yeah, and and I get the. the your Aussies uh, chaps who get on the phone to me say, Hey Dan, how you going, mate? How are those nightmares going? And uh, yeah, of course you have uh, n- nightmares when uh, you, you do things uh, wrong instead of, instead of right. But um, I, I was I was glad I played in that in that series, uh, believe it or not, and um, bagging pairs and not not scoring runs, but just to be part of it because they were they were on fire. It's amazing how little attitude you're given at the selection table through that that little stretch of time. I mean, we mentioned before how well you were going, one bad series and you jettisoned again. It said that you were a real tinkerer and a tweaker uh, and that when you were out of the team, you were always working on something perhaps to a fault. And by that, I mean you may not have trusted your natural game quite so much, which served you pretty well back in, in 72, which we referred to before. I mean, you, you, you do play in the World Cup in 75, of course, and, well, we should talk to that as well. The, the first game of any men's cricket World Cup, you make a century, big one, 137 from 147 balls against India, which is positively flying in that era, 60-over cricket and all the rest of it. Um, that contrast to Gavaska later in the same game. But, yeah, just reflecting on, on that time in your life when, you're back out of the England team and you have to find another way. And, and you're kind of using white ball cricket, or should I say lo- uh, short-form cricket, as the catalyst for it. Yeah, it gives you, it gives you confidence, doesn't it? So you, you've got to play well to score runs. And uh, and I think those the short-form game gave me the confidence to do it, to know that I'd still got the shots, but it's it's getting in. And uh, when we played against the Aussies, against Lillian Thompson, they, 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 put, they put you under a lot of pressure. They didn't, do, they didn't want you to get in because they knew if, if I got in, I might get a big one. Did you overthink it? Did, did, in hindsight, looking back at it now, were you too sort of trapped in your own thoughts when things weren't going well, which might have uh, elongated these, these tough periods? Yeah, I, I probably... Um, you, you brought up a good point. Did I trust my technique? Well, when I went to Australia, uh, someone said to me, you want to get runs in Australia against fast bowling, you've got to stay leg side of the ball. 
And when you think that Alan Knott and Tony Gregg, they stayed leg side of the ball because the ball bounces more on, 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 and they bowl it off stump, get it, getting big on you. And I, and I see Steve Smith playing against England a couple of years ago now, and he's gone, he's gone, he's gone right over to the off stump. And I thought, well, he's not doing it, uh, but he's had a, a fantastic career before that anyway. But to, to, to stay leg side of the ball wasn't my game. I tried it in the nets and I found that uh, it didn't suit me but I think you've got to do that with fast bowlers in a, in a, especially in Australia you've got to um, leave a lot and um, stay probably a leg side of the ball but uh, anyway you know we, we, we had some fun and uh, some memories and uh, some are good and some aren't so good <laughs> So you're out of the side until 1976 and then you come back in a test match where Michael Holding takes 14 wickets you know you've had this trouble with the Australian fast bowlers but you're up against against one of the all-time greats who dominates and you make a double hundred. Tell us about that process of how you worked your way back into the team and then how you approached going about that innings. Well, I thought that uh, Michael had hit me, hadn't he, um, at Lords in, in the MCCV West Indies game and it was my fault. I, du- I ducked into one and uh, it, not, it, it shook me up. And I thought, well, I've either got to give the game up or I've got to do something else. And I looked at Kenny Barrington, I looked at Ian Chappell, and both of those went back and across, and they played fast bowling pretty well, so uh, I tried it. And, and in that season, we played on some, some really good wickets early on, so I got my confidence at doing it, because I got runs of county cricket. So I'm going into a test match now, and I thought, well, I'll, I'll, I'll use the same f- format, uh, because I've got runs with it, and I'm used to it, and I got my rhythm at it, and it was a really good wicket. It was a really good batting wicket, but uh, still Michael bowled uh, ball fast. But, uh, yeah, and that's what you've got to do. I mean, you know, you have, as I say, you have your bad times, you've got to get, get back up, get back on. It's like, I suppose it's like falling off the horse. You've got to get, get, get back on the horse and, and, and give it a go and, and, and fight. And I didn't want people saying, well, you're a failure against fast bowling. And uh, so uh, I was out to prove a point again. Well, no better way to prove it. Like, it's kind of seen as your second big, you know, masterpiece, isn't it? The 203 against the Windies, against, as Jeff says, holding 14 in a match. And is it accurate to say that Tony Gregg effectively plucked you at that point and said, I want you back in my test team, having seen you bat in a domestic game? Yeah. Yeah, it was. Yeah. And, um, but, but Greggy, <laughs> Greggy, was that the year that he was going to make them grovel? Yes, it was. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> and and uh, I often tell the story that when he came in, you know, he was... Uh, uh, he would be swinging his arms like, like the great Greek god, the Olympian, coming out and uh, a player. And, he, and, he, and he came up the way, we're going to shouting and say, we're going to get him, we're going to go, we'll smash him all, all over the place. I said, shush, shush, it's nice out here, it's nice and quiet. And suddenly uh, um, my, um, Clive Lloyd said, uh, Michael come back and Andy come back and all hell broke out. And I've never been so pleased in my life to see... Tony Gregg, England captain, losing his leg stump by a magnificent thunderbolt of a Yorker from my Michael Holding and going back to the pivot and, and it suddenly quietened down again. It was it was lovely, not not so nasty, and we were able to carry on playing the game we, we'd been playing all the, all day. Dennis, we talk about the centenary test on this show all the time. Um, it's a, it's one of the great test matches, of course, and in the fourth innings in that huge 
run chase attempt. You make 64, you put on 166 with Derek Randall as he makes one of the great test hundreds. What are your memories around that? I mean, the occasion, the size of the occasion and, and the match itself. Well, it was very special, wasn't it? We we had all the players from past players as well as present, present day players there for, for that. Um, Great occasion at Melbourne, capacity crowds and uh, wonderful cricket I, I, to, to witness a great innings, a great test innings by Derek Randall at the other end. He took Ashley Mallet off me quite a bit, which I, I didn't appreciate at one stage where, when I had to put out with Dennis Lee a bit more than I wanted to. But uh, anyway, he, it, was a, it was a great knock and... Uh, it was a great shame. I thought I thought we were going to do it at one stage, but but we fell short, didn't we? Yeah, in the in the same yeah. margin as it was in in the first Test match, and it, I mean, it, yeah, it, it pretty much brings upon the end of your international career. Like that that last twelve months it starts at the Oval in '76. You go to India and win over there, having lost there the first time you went. You make a big century at Delhi, um, but again, it's the Australians visiting in in '77. And despite the fact that it had been a pretty productive year for you, you get no rope to work with and after two test matches you're you're sacked again and that's it and at the time the rationale given is that Jeff Boycott's available again to open the batting and you of course had opened with Jeff uh, earlier in your career you'd had a an altercation with him back in 73 when you were seen to have run him out and he was going to run you out and the captain said no you won't be doing any of that I mean uh, give us a, a bit of insight to what it's like being close to Jeff Boycott. I know he wrote the forward to your most recent book, uh, opening the batting with him, and ultimately the fact that it was he who came back to replace you and, and end your international career. I think that the test match that really sorted us, us out was we came back to play the Aussies again, didn't we, after, after uh, yep. the series in Australia. And it was the first test match at Edgbaston, and it was on uncovered wickets. And what we didn't want was to play on a wet wicket. And we got the forecast and we thought we should bat. And we told our captain that uh, we thought we should bat because it was going to rain. And we didn't want to play Lillian Thompson on a wet one. Mm. And what happened? We put him in. We won the toss and put him in. And you guys got, uh, I don't know, three, nearly 300 or something like that. And we had to play Lillian Thompson on a wet wicket. What we wanted to do was play him on a flat one, which it was in that first innings. But, but, but we put him in. And it was so important that, that we I'd play him on an English wicket, an English flat wicket. And, uh, and that didn't happen. But maybe I'd have got, I'd have got out and, 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 uh, and, and not got many. But uh, you've got a chance on, on, on good wickets. Uh, not so bouncy as in Australia and you can play your natural game so I think that was a great turning point um, and uh, the confidence uh, left us because it was just um, a bit like Australia the ball was taking off I mean Gucci you got, got a, he banked a pair didn't he in the, in the test match he got, he got unplayable deliveries so uh, I, I, that was that was a great a great regret that we did, we weren't able to, to turn that situation around and and Jeffrey coming in well Jeffrey got a great track record he was a great player and um, yeah we'd had our contretons um, with, with the runouts and things and uh, we still play on it now and uh, uh, I mean uh, we, we were on tour um, watch, watching the cricket we weren't playing and uh, he came down for breakfast and he couldn't he couldn't see anybody he knew and uh, I was with my wife so he looked at us and he thought oh he's, and I said as soon as Jeffrey comes over we stand out stand up we walk out and, and we did and uh, he got so annoyed <laughs> <laughs> but it was only in fun so I said sit down we'll have a cup of coffee together so we still play on it uh, even now 
And uh, I'd have got 150 under if you hadn't run me out, Amy's. <laughs> Jeffrey, what a character, what a player. So it wraps up for you there, but you keep playing domestic cricket for another 10 years after that. Um, you're, you're one of the rare players who has better test numbers than first-class numbers. You average 46 in test cricket and 43 in, in first-class cricket. And as an opener, 53.7, if you look at openers who have better averages with the 20 innings minimum, it's only Sutcliffe and Hobbs, Len Hutton, Bob Simpson, Bill Ponsford, Bruce Mitchell, the South African player, and Usman Khawaj has just qualified with his 20th innings. That's a pretty short list of players with a better average opening the batting than you in Test cricket. That's fantastic. I mean, I, I didn't know about that uh, record, but uh, to be um, uh, amongst those great players uh, is um, lovely. Um, yeah, I, I, I mean, I, I enjoyed opening the batting more than more than I did down the order, and uh, you're able to, uh, to get in and... Uh, play yourself in okay you're going to get unplayable deliveries occasionally with a new ball and, and the fast bowlers but uh, to get over it and, and as I say I just enjoyed it and my coach always said to me Dennis he said uh, be good with a knife and fork you can't score runs without uh, some good food in you and if you get if you get 50 get 100 if you get 100 get 150 200 250 and it, it, it was on my brain the whole of my career because I knew that I was going to get noughts and ones and failures and, and, and bag pairs and things like that so you've got to um, when, you, when you're in there and it's going for you you've got to you've got to make hey and that's the other extraordinary stat about your career. I mean, 73% of your centuries at Test Cricket, you went on to pass 150. I mean, Bradman did that 62% of times. You you are the outlier there on that front that you just didn't, you didn't just get to 100 and throw it away. You, you invariably went on and made it count. 11 centuries, 11 50s or 11 other 50s. There's not many players who have that imbalance either. So it kind of reinforces the point. The fantastic that stats those are. On. I, I, I didn't know about those stats. Well, yeah, I mean, again, it just it just bolsters this idea that that uh, I don't know. I guess the the kid that arrived at Edgbaston in in 1958 who had to scrap for everything, who was still there in the amateur professional era. I mean, you were what weren't even able to dress in the in the main pavilion because you were a professional, right? Like you, you had to fight for everything you got. Yeah. Yeah, I mean, we did, yeah. We'd, we, we, we had the other dressing room, the pros in one dressing room, the amateurs in the other. Yeah, and... Uh, yeah, and I, and I was um, a secondary modern schoolboy and, uh, and I think that um, most of the people that I played against, who, uh, played against, played with and against, a lot of them public, public schoolboys. And that's fantastic for them to have uh, such, such a, a great career and have great facilities to, to play on. And uh, it was always... Uh, you know, you're always up against it, but you you wanted to show that you were as good as them. And I suppose for you finishing in 1977, the upside of that is you get to go to World Series cricket without having to sacrifice uh, an England career at that point. Um, you're suddenly getting paid much, much better money than you would have been making playing test cricket to go and play for Kerry Packer instead. Yeah, I mean, that's a, 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 big, a big decision, but um, I thought that... Um, Maybe my uh, test career had come to an end. I played 50 test matches and uh, there was an opportunity. I felt I was one of the best players and I said, I, um, why aren't I? Wanna, I want to play with these guys. They're the, they're the best in the world. Um, I'd, I'd like to be uh, considered to play with them. So, yeah, I was asked and uh, uh, um, I think I made the decision before chatting it through with my wife, which she's never forgiven me for. But, but uh, 
uh, not not that she said I got it wrong, but she she just at the fact that I didn't uh, speak to her and uh, talk to her about it. But uh, it was Richard Biennale that convinced me and and Tony Gregg that uh, this was going to be something special. It was tough times because we took a lot of stick from the press and everything. But I look back on it and I'm glad. I'm glad because the game changed and, and we changed it. Well, yeah, I mean, you're on the vanguard of that change, being part of floodlit cricket for the first time in Australia and earning sort of proper money, playing in the pyjamas with the, the white balls. And yeah. You with the helmet, we touched on it before, but you were the first person to walk out with one of those crash helmets on. It's one of the things you're most well known for and ultimately that, that helmet getting passed around to David Hooks when he came back after his broken jaw and, and realising that, uh, you know, we, we, we protect other parts of our body, why don't we protect our head? And given you'd copped a couple of whacks in your international career, it, it only stood to reason that you'd, you'd put on the, the big motorcycle helmet. Yeah, I mean, that was, I, n I never thought it would take off in this country. And uh, when I mentioned to Tony Gregg that, um, you know, we'd had Lillian Thompson and uh, Australian wickets with, with a lot of bounce, we got 18, something like 18 fast bowlers who could all bowl at 90 miles an hour. Do, do, you, think, do you think we would have a bit more armour? <laughs> and uh, Gregg, he said, uh, he, he looked at it, he said, he said, I talked to Kerry about this, Kerry Packer, and uh, he came back and said, Kerry would love it. He said, uh, yeah, the... Um, the more different things that, that add to uh, this very um, special, special time, special, special cricket, the better. And uh, he, he, he said, yeah, let's give it a go. And, and uh, the first time I walked out, in it, I heard them say, hey, Amy, hey, Amy, where's your motorbike, mate? So after 27 years playing for Warwickshire, I guess it's only natural that you move into administration. You eventually become CEO of the club. You have that job for a dozen years. Is there anything more satisfying that you've got right in your life than signing Brian Lara in 1994 one day before he goes out and makes 375 and breaks the world record? That was absolutely fantastic, wasn't it? It was a great era for the club. Um, the membership, I think, was over 20,000 when, when Brian was with us, which it, it had never been before, and I don't think it's ever been since. But he was such a great player, and um, he, he'd come and talk to me um, we, we, we got it so right. I mean, we, we were in, in for Prabhaka, first of all, but Prabhaka got injured uh, and he had uh, ankle problems and we decided, we spoke to his agent and said, look, you know, this, this chap's not going to make it. Uh, we'd like to uh, come to an agreement, which we did, and Prabhaka was out of it and then suddenly the cricket committee having a chat and uh, saying, who do we want? And it was, it was Brian Lara because he was scoring all those runs against England. Mike Smith, our chairman, was out as manager of the England side. And, and we said, uh, the, the club's decided, Mike, yet sign him. And, and, and he did. And then, and then we couldn't find his passport. <laughs> and uh, MJK had emptied all his clothes out of his suitcase on top of his passport, which was on the other bed. Anyway, he did find it in the end. And uh, it looked as though Brian was not going to make the beginning of the season. But we found his passport and he, he made the beginning of the season in eight, eight centuries on the trot, including a 500. It was fantastic. Everybody wanted to be associated with the club. We are our partners, uh, our sponsors, Everybody, the, the staff, everybody was on a high. It was just a fantastic time. Yeah, it, it's a real glory era for Warwickshire and it's uh, part of that time when you first become an ECB director as well, well, before it's called the ECB, I suppose. But you make a, a lot of good calls you're involved in central contracts when they first come in and we can see the fruits of that with someone like James Anderson still playing now at the age of 40. You're involved in 
sorting out the diplomatic incident between Kevin Peterson and, and Andrew Strauss. But I guess uh, I wonder, and this is probably an, an uncomfortable question, but I wonder the longer time that you're in administration and, and the more you got to see and the more worldly life that you would lead in that role, whether it gave you pause for thought about the decision you made to go to South Africa in 82 and whether having different experiences off the field might have amended the way you see that decision decades later. Yeah, that's a, that's a, that's a good question. And I, I, I'm not sure I have the answer for that other than... I was a great lover of South Africa and I went out there coaching and I coached at um, two schools, Kimberley Boys High School and, uh, and, and also uh, in East London, Selborne College. And I had fantastic times out there and we met up at Christmas when the, when the schools were on holiday and met up with all the other pros. I loved the country, went to game reserves and those sort of things. So I, I just wanted to do something. Okay, we were going to get paid money, we were going to take a cricket all over, but we were going to coach as well at schools and uh, colour schools as well as, as, as well as the white schools. So that we felt that was going to help. And other than that, I'm not quite sure I, I have the, the, uh, any, any other answers that, that I wanted to be part of it, to, to spread, spread the game in, in South Africa, help them, as well as doing, what, doing decently ourselves. Do you look on at what happens with the ECB now and the, the difficulties in high administration and, and just feel a sense of relief that you're well out of it or, or do you feel an urge to roll up the sleeves and, and plunge back in? Yeah, no, <laughs> not at the age of 80. <laughs> I did my stuff, I did my term, we're all passing through, we all give it our best shot. I was really, I really loved it. Um, I felt the pressures, obviously, at times, because um, I was on the main board and uh, we had to make uh, difficult decisions. Um, I was chairman of cricket, I was chairman of the England committee. And all those pressures that, that, that come with those titles, you, you love the titles, but you've got you to uh, handle the pressure as well. And I had really good people there who helped me. Um, and uh, John Carr, uh, he's one that um, um, you'll probably know. Uh, Alan Fordham, they were, they were, they were really good blokes. At, um, we were able to, uh, to sort things out and uh, talk it through with them. And they helped, they helped us a lot as, as non-execs. And just going back to your first love as we finish, 100 hundreds. I mean, you stayed on, an extra part of your career. Not many cricketers play 10 years after they finished as an international. Well, you did playing to age 44. It's an extraordinary span, 29 years as a, a first-class player when you include what you did as a 15-year-old schoolboy on the way up in the 50s, still going in, in 87. Get to the 100, 100 mark. Uh, one of only 25 men to achieve that. Nobody will ever get there again on the basis of the way the modern game works. It, do you occasionally just consider the enormity of your contribution as a batter in your first love? All those runs, 43,000 of them in first-class cricket, 102 times, raising the bat and just step back and go, gee, I made the very most of my opportunities. Yeah, I, I mean, you do, uh, especially when you're a bit low. <laughs> and, uh, you know, maybe things aren't going quite right in, uh, in, in, other, in other things in life. And then, you, you yeah, that, that, that just gives you a perk up and um, I was very lucky I had um, you know 30 years as a, as a player 20 years of administrating and it was a fantastic time time to be around the game the game's moved on again and I, I, I love it the way it's moved on and uh, we're always tinkering with it and uh, why, why not because we uh, we're not just tinkering for tinkering's sake we're trying to we're trying to make it better and I was always in my in my position I always wanted what it should to do well and win and I, I shouldn't forget in that Brian Lara era that we had a fantastic side a young side 
but a young, experienced side. And all those players around Brian, they were, um, yes, he helped to pull them up and, uh, and, and give them the run so quickly, gave them lots of time to bowl the opposition out. But they were fantastic as well. So uh, we shouldn't forget how important a role they played around Brian as well. The remit of these interviews is to go into a life in cricket well across five decades. I don't think there are many people in this country who have given more to the game. Dennis Amos, happy birthday for your 80th the other week. Thanks for being so forthcoming today and let's hope you can continue to enjoy the, the summer ahead with Australia out here as well. Thanks, Adam. It's been a pleasure. Final word, Adam Collins, Jeff Lemon, and thanks again to Dennis Amos. Uh, just a lovely man. We were fumbling around trying to get the Wi-Fi to work at the golf club before we started chatting. So we had um, some sort of time off mic before and still plays golf three times a week. He's involved in multiple competitions. He only picked up golf later in life, but he's thrown himself into that with the same enthusiasm that he that he clearly did with his cricket. But it, yeah, gorgeous morning for it. And um, just a, a very happy, jovial, considered guy, which I'm sure you could tell from the interview. Here's a stat that I didn't get to throw at him in the interview. So we mentioned 1100s, 1150s. The only players to have made more than 1100s and have an even or better ratio to their half centuries, Ijaz Ahmed, Arthur Morris, Clyde Walcott, Michael Vaughan, Muhammad Azaruddin, Michael Clark, Virat Kohli, Don Bradman, <laughs> Matthew Hayden, Eunice Khan. That's a pretty good list to be coming in at number 11 on. Yeah, absolutely. And I, and I like that list you ran through with him as well about the, the number of openers that have had a better average than 53.7. I mean, that's better than Kavaska, Boycott, Greenwich, Morris. I mean, these are these are crazy names. Yeah, and again, kind of comes back to the central thesis when we began recording and, and doing our research on this. He, he comes up on story time frequently, but we've never done the big deep dive on him. It feels like if he had, say, 16 test hundreds and played a few more test matches we'd be talking about him as a candidate to be in the England sort of like team of the century or something like that but you know Hobbs and Sutcliffe often make that a, mm. a pretty easy equation for those pulling together fictional sides from the 20th century but you know it gives you a feel for just how prolific he was and uh, the extent to which he made it count. Yeah I mean he's probably in that conversation at Sutcliffe, Hobbs, Len Hutton um, and then yeah, potentially he should be coming in next slot down um, in, in terms of your, your bench depth for your opening bats, I suppose. So I hope that we've been able to give a bit more context around him and, and his life and career for those who didn't know much about him. And I'm mindful there might be questions after this about why we didn't interrogate more about World Series cricket and his um, Rebel tour to South Africa in, in 82. That was purely down to the lack of time we had. We um, we probably realised with quarter of an hour to go that we were rushing through quite a bit, so it only allowed for a couple of questions at the end. But I think that we captured the essence of his thoughts uh, on both being involved in, in PACA and South Africa. And, you know, we, we probably could have done more on that, but that was just down to the time we had available today. So that is the kind of thing that we like to be able to do on the show, uh, go and find interesting people and talk to them. So if you uh, want to help us out doing that, patron.com slash the final word is the place to go. There are a lot of good fun things happening on that website so you can get involved with the show in a range of ways there. Uh, if you want to contribute to what we're doing at the Edinburgh Half Marathon for the Lord's Tavs, that link, as always, will be in the show notes. And uh, we will be back on Storytime with an episode that, all things being equal, will be in the feed at some point on Friday afternoon UK time or when you wake up on Saturday in Australia. This has been The Final Word. Adam Collins, Jeff Lemon. Thanks again to Dennis Amos. Speak again on the weekend. Bye for now. I had to go.